0: Welcome to Earth Matters, stories of environmental and social justice produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hi, I'm Helen William. Earlier this month, Alcoa announced it would be closing its coal-fired power plant and open-cut mine at Anglesey, on the Great Ocean Road in Victoria, after 46 years of operation. Earth Matters has been following the community campaign to close the mine for some years. And now the closure has been announced, campaigners have called for local workers to be involved in rehabilitation of the site. But what does it take to rehabilitate land that has been used for mining? How do you go about repairing a landscape? And how and when do you know the environment is restored? Later in the show, we'll hear from Gavin Mudd, Senior Lecturer in Environmental Engineering at Monash University, about the particular difficulties of rehabilitating uranium mines, and if that's even possible. But first, I spoke with Corin Unger, Senior Research Officer at the Centre for Mined Land Rehabilitation at the University of Queensland. Corin has worked and studied in the area of mine rehabilitation for many years, and was awarded a James Love Churchill Fellowship in 2009. To study abandoned mine rehabilitation and post-mining land use in Europe and Canada, I spoke to Corinne about the meaning of mine rehabilitation and the national conversation that's needed so that mines are better managed during and after their operating life. Thanks, Corinne. Thanks for joining us today on Earth Matters. When we talk about rehabilitation of a mine site, what are we talking about? Does that always require restoring an environment to its pre-mining state, or can it mean a number of other things?
1: That can be a um, a range of of land uses, but um, there's a f- probably a few terms and phrases that I might just uh, introduce now because I might refer to them, and listeners may not be aware of them. So, I see rehabilitation as a as a subset of uh, mine closure planning. Uh, the rehabilitation part of it is is more strongly focused on the biophysical environment, whereas if you think about the complete closure process for a mine and preparing for closure, which if it's done really well, it starts right from the outset with the design of the mine. But if um, if you think of those uh, two parts of it, then the broader closure issues really address um, post-mining land use, they address um, voids, as well as um, the growing of vegetation, which is more typically associated with rehabilitation. And it, it's really about how the community is engaged in that process so that the land uses that are created after mining are aligned with community expectations. So closure is sort of the umbrella theme, and then within it we have rehabilitation and a number of other
0: tasks. So that suggests that closure and rehabilitation requirements can't always be stated when a mine's approved. It's something that really gets negotiated towards the end of a mine's life, or at least reconsidered. Is that a reasonable thing to say?
1: Yeah, so there's an international guideline... Uh, by the ICMM, the International Council for Mining and Metals, and they describe it as being having a conceptual closure concept when you start, and that concept is refined over the life of a project. So most um, mine approvals, uh, and every state is different in Australia in terms of how rehabilitation and closure are addressed, but mostly, uh, up front, there needs to be a closure concept, and that will often involve the creation of an image of the landscape as it might look at the end of that mining project based on the plans proposed in that that, uh,
0: approvals process. But many mines can go for decades. Does that mean the last owner is really responsible for much of the cost of what the current community wants to see happen? If
1: the progressive rehabilitation um, which is the the annual rehabilitation work that's undertaken as an area of uh, it becomes available for rehabilitation so you're building a waste rock dump or a spoil pile uh, depending on the the mine type um, the idea is to build those landforms progressively as part of an overall concept and so those early stages can be finished off rehabilitated as the rest of that landform is still being added to so when you when you see really good rehabilitation that's being undertaken each year you'll see revegetation works that are at different stages. You can see some more mature revegetation right through to some young um, works, and and that shows a site that's really trying to do as much as they can while the mine's active. And if that's undertaken, then there isn't so much to be done at the end. But there are always um, works that have to wait till the end, obviously, because they're active right through to the end.
0: Can you think of an example? You just mentioned that, you know, some good practices to do this rehabilitation as you go is, is there some way you're particularly thinking of
1: one of the probably more famous sites um in australia is really the alcoa's um, bauxite mining operations and both bauxite and sand mining have something in common in that they're quite easy to to rehabilitate as they go along because it's shallow mining um, involves scraping off the upper layers uh, the materials don't always need to be stockpiled for terribly long before they can be replaced and so some of our more successful rehabilitation uh, occurs in those mining types. In Gove and the Northern Territory also some very good examples. That's another bauxite operation. Then you have coal mines and then I think metalliferous mines and it, there's a bit of a, a um, like a continuum of, I guess, difficulty and so, and towards the end of the scale it, it's more complex because you've had much more dramatic changes to the landscape in the process of mining.
0: And You mentioned earlier that there are different approaches around the country to establishing mine rehabilitation requirements, and I'm assuming also to monitoring that as well. Is that a problem, that each state has its own requirements and that there's a layer of federal oversight as well? The federal
1: oversight is is fairly minor, generally speaking. So it's um, my understanding that state and territory jurisdictions are responsible for mining regulation uh, and issuing of mining tenure. So the responsibility uh, in Australia largely resides with the states. So we do have national legislation like ANZEC Water Quality Guidelines, NEPAM, which is um, National Environmental Protection Measures, and um, we have the EPBC Act, which is the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act. So those um, federal legislations interact to a degree. There's also a multiple land use framework, which has been developed by the Australian government in consultation with the states. So there are some planning frameworks under COAG, which interact with mine rehabilitation and closure. In 2000, there was a mine closure strategic framework developed under COAG by the mines ministers or their, their delegates. And that um, document was a very useful tool, but it's um, it's no longer on the Australian government webpage. But that there is an opportunity for something like that to be updated and 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 are available as some sort of overarching guidance for states.
0: Have you seen something that you think is a best practice regime? I know you've travelled a lot um, internationally to look at the legacy of mining. What do you think would be the best approach to oversighting long-term the rehabilitation of mine sites?
1: I'd say there's a a range of elements. Um, If I think about Canada and what I learnt there from their management of legacy sites. Um, the critical thing there was for governments to fully account for their liabilities, and that that was transformational in um, virtually all jurisdictions. So once they fully accounted for those legacy sites, the sort of more the historic abandoned mines, then those problems uh, and impacts were addressed in a very systematic manner. In contrast, in Australia, we have a national policy for abandoned mines, but uh, only some states are are active in that space and others are, are doing less. So we have a sort of an inconsistent approach. And so there was a, there was a concerted effort to write that document, but then once it was developed, um, the committee hasn't, hasn't met again. So this is where there is a role for national leadership on an issue to, to keep um, an issue on the national agenda so that all states are engaged in that dialogue over time. A consequence of that is that you end up building capacity and building skills from, from within government, which then can be applied to, to active mine, um, mine sites. So for an, for an environmental regulator in, in each of the jurisdictions in Australia to be an expert in closure, rehabilitation, as well as water management, air, noise, dust, and so on, it's, quite a, it's a complex um, diversity of expertise. But if we really want to have good quality rehabilitation, closure. We have to build that capacity uh, within governments and also in communities so that communities understand uh, what are the key elements of successful rehabilitation, uh, planning, closure design, and uh, so they can actually recognise it.
0: You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with me, Helen Guilliam. I'm talking to Corin Unger, Senior Research Officer at the Centre for Mindland Rehabilitation at the University of Queensland about the environmental legacy of closed and abandoned mines. We mentioned at the start that the community now has a greater expectation about being involved in this stuff. We've just seen the recent announcement in Victoria of the closure of the Alcoa mine and power plant at Anglesey, and there is already significant expectation that the workers who are going to be laid off and the local community will be involved in rehabilitation. Does that kind of involvement increase the chances of rehabilitation being effective?
1: The key to... um so sort of successful rehabilitation is engaging the community sort of during the life of a project, all the way through, and, and in fact building a lot of uh, you know small mining enterprises around those activities, so that by the time you get to closure, they're they're um, well established and the expertise ex- exists, and you've got um, you know small community um, based businesses that are able to to carry that work forward. It's also they also provide in different regions. Um, Mine rehabilitation provides opportunities for indigenous employment, seed collecting, um, plant propagation and rehabilitation, and where that is active, you have some very good success stories um, around mine rehabilitation.
0: I guess when we're talking about mine rehabilitation, people might be thinking about the bigger commercial, more recent mining, but you've written a lot about abandoned mines, that there are thousands of them, aren't there?
1: In Australia, there are um, more than 50,000 records Of abandoned mines, but as each state has a different um, way of uh, describing abandoned mines, some of those 50,000 records are just individual shafts, whereas some are large, complex and polluting sites. The the study I did to look at that with uh, my colleagues was really just to see, well, what information is out there and can we put it all on one map? Because while we sort of progress at a state-based level, there is this um, absence of an overarching risk assessment, which says, where are our big risks, Uh, where are our significant abandoned mines in Australia, and how are we addressing them? Um, How are they being managed under these national legislations such as the ANZIC, NEPM, and EPBC? And and what you find is that abandoned mines fall into regulatory black holes. So they don't have a mine manager just like an active mine, and, and often become the responsibility of one government department, but the other government department may need to regulate those activities, and this is a place where we haven't uh, made as much progress as we need to yet, and this is where progress has been made in in overseas countries such as USA and Canada, where they say laws are laws and they're going to apply to whoever's left with the responsibility for these sites, and so they apply those laws consistently.
0: So does that mean in Canada that would apply, those laws would apply to a private landowner who may have a number of historic abandoned mine shafts on their site? So there is
1: a difference between um, abandoned mines that are on private land and on crown land. In um, in the Queensland Flood Commission inquiry, it was pointed out that of the 15,000 abandoned mines in Queensland, only 3,500 were on crown land, and so the state said, well, they're, they're responsible for them, but the rest are the responsibility of landowners. Um, it poses a number of questions, but the important thing is that these things have to be defined in policy, and what we what we don't find is many jurisdictions that actually have an abandon mine policy that defines who is responsible, how will they be tackled, and how the liability will be addressed over time.
0: So does that mean there's really not much guidance for a private landowner in Australia who felt for altruistic reasons they might want to rehabilitate a a mine site?
1: It depends nature of the, the site. If it's just a, a shaft and it provides a physical risk, um, so if they're grazing um, then it's probably quite easy to fence out. And in, in some states I think there is a, some guidance. Um, for example, New South Wales has got guidance on how to conserve bats in mine shafts as part of um, remediation considerations. So there are ways of conserving uh, bat habitat while you um, keep humans out and, and keep them safe. So there's a whole range, because some um, Legacy issues basically invoke the whole range of, of issues to do with safety, health, stability, sustainability. They, they really are complex sites, and it's something that I think in Australia we're still only, only learning about. And some jurisdictions are moving ahead faster than others. So, for example, West Australian government is, is developing an abandoned mine policy now, They've introduced a, a levy to help fund for that fund that work and the Northern Territory government has a, has a levy and a program as well. We have some older programs in Tasmania, New South Wales and Queensland. Um, in Victoria it's very hard to find who's responsible for legacy sites. Um, and South Australia I don't think has a, a legacy Mines program yet. So we just my research was looking at a jurisdictional maturity model so we, we actually just looked at what was available in, in the public domain. And based on that information, made an assessment of how far they progressed with various elements, from you know quantifying the sites through to developing policy, engaging uh, the communities, uh, and through to positive post-mining land use. It, I think the the factors that influence rehabilitation quality and outcomes, you know, in active mines are often related to the cycles in the industry. So when When there's growth in the industry, there's a focus on expansion and and often that's not a good time for companies to focus on their rehabilitation. But similarly, when there's a downturn, um, there there isn't as much um, cash flow to, to implement rehabilitation as well. So one of the things that I've noticed over the decades is that rehabilitation and closure planning requires a real concerted effort throughout the life of the mine that is irrespective of those cycles. And this is something that's very... Uh, difficult to achieve, um, but some of the, the most successful closure planning processes I've seen is where mining companies have integration teams, closure integration teams, which means major decisions about the mine plan and how or any changes to it go back to a closure committee and then they think about the closure implications of those decisions. And this seems to be a, a very important way of keeping the closure issues in the present, instead of just saying, we'll worry about them later. So you, if you go to build a new waste dump and you're going to build it in a certain configuration, you think about the shape, the slope, the land use. Who do we need to engage with on this? Do we need to tell the community because this is a variation on what we originally agreed? Is this the land use that the community wants? And doing that engagement process so that involves communities, people, uh, the, the environmental people, as well as the mine planner, as well as the, the mill manager and, and the various other people who have a... A role in closure. It really just cuts across all disciplines. So, if there's one message, it is that one person cannot have all that knowledge, but often the closure or rehabilitation person is a catalyst for bringing together the dialogue around closure issues so that they are addressed in a multidisciplinary way. And, they, and involving the community is a critical aspect of having good closure outcomes.
0: Corinunga, Senior Research Officer at the Centre for Mindland Rehabilitation at the University of Queensland. You can read some of Corinne's publications about mine rehabilitation at the University of Queensland website. Just search for Corin Unger, that's U-N-G-E-R. Australia has the world's largest known uranium resources and has been mining uranium since the 1950s. There are currently three uranium mines operating in Australia, Ranger in the Northern Territory, and Beverly and Olympic Dam mines in South Australia. There are also five former uranium mines, including the notorious Rum Jungle mine in the Northern Territory, which was, perhaps unbelievably now, converted into a recreational lake once the mine was closed, only for radiation levels to be considered later as unsafe for human health. At a time when there's yet another inquiry looking into the potential of nuclear power in Australia, what have we learned about the challenges of rehabilitating uranium mines once they're closed? I spoke to Gavin Mudd, Senior Lecturer in Environmental Engineering at Monash University and a well-known researcher and commentator on the environmental impacts of uranium mining. I started by asking Gavin, is it even possible to rehabilitate an area to its former environmental state after uranium mining?
2: Certainly in Australia the evidence uh, is not good. Like If you look at all of the former uranium mines in Australia, uh, Radium Hill, Mary Kathleen or Rum Jungle, even Narbolegh, um, all of them have got ongoing environmental issues there that basically require ongoing maintenance or in the more severe case like Rum Jungle where there's still very extreme pollution leaking out through acid mine drainage. Uh, it's going to need an entirely new um, you know, effort of rehabilitation. So um, I, I think in my mind it's actually something that we, we haven't been able to show good success on.
0: So you mentioned acid mine drainage. What is that? What are the particular challenges of cleaning up after uranium mining?
2: Well, uranium mining, uh, I suppose, has multiple a- aspects to look at. One, of course, is uh, obviously the radiation issues, and, and ideally you would want to return a mine to no more than the original radiation levels that existed in that site prior to mining. Uh, and certainly from the evidence that uh, you know I've looked at over the years, uh, there, there's often uh, a good chance that uh, mines actually leave a greater radiation footprint at the surface generally than what existed prior to mining. Now... It does depend on whether you're looking at gamma radiation um, or, say, radon. Uh, if you look at Narbolek, the uh, actual radon levels that were uh, measured um, emanating from the surface of the rehabilitated Narbolek mine were about you know, um, several times lower than what they were prior to mining. But the gamma radiation levels were about 50% higher over an area of about 20 times the uh, area of the original um, ore deposit. So um, so in one sense, one's down, but another one is up, um, So when you're looking at it, that's sort of obviously one of the the key areas of uh, concern. Um, But also a lot of the standard issues that that any mine site needs to look at, which is erosion. Uh, Physical sediment can create uh, ecological problems in in an adjacent stream, for example. So um, sometimes it's not just about chemical pollution. It can be just as much about physical pollution. And so when you're looking at chemical pollution, there's processes such as uh, seepage from a tailings dam, and that can leak out either... uh, heavy metals, some, sometimes salt, sometimes uh, radionuclides as well. Uh, and a lot of that can be very site-specific, but certainly we know that there, there's evidence. If you look at Mary Kathleen, the uh, rate of tailing stamp seepage is much higher than was predicted uh, during rehabilitation. And they predicted there would be no acid mine drainage, which is a process simply where you take sulfide minerals such as pyrite, um, expose them in a surface environment to water and to oxygen, and then that chemically reacts to form sulfuric acid, which then in turn leach, leaches out things like heavy metals and salts and uh, radionuclides and so on. So Mary Kathleen, they predicted in the 1980s when they uh, um, completed all of the rehabilitation there that there would be no acid mine drainage, there would be no leaking out of uh, radionuclides, um, and that the amount of seepage would be very minimal from the tailing, from the rehabilitated tailing dam, and that also the actual rehabilitated structure would be physically stable from erosion. Now, uh, out of all of those four main sort of um, you know, assumptions or sort of expectations, the only one that's proven true over time so far, over the last 25-odd years, uh, is low erosion rates. So there is uptake of radionuclides into the vegetation there. There is a much greater seepage rate, and there is active acid mine drainage occurring there. So, um, so these are all the risks that you need to look at, as well as what you do with, a say, former open cut, What you do with the uh, uh, large piles of uh, waste rock, which is basically rock that's got, say, no uranium in it or very low levels, Um, sometimes the levels are sufficient to actually be considered a a radioactive waste. So low-grade ore, as it's called, also has to be addressed and how you either isolate that from the environment, from from the public and so on.
0: You mentioned a couple of times there in those examples that during the rehabilitation phase, and it sounds like there's a a defined phase often for rehabilitation but then a much more uncertain watch and wait phase is that accurate
2: no, absolutely and it's one of the big issues i think that when we're looking at mine rehabilitation generally we often only monitor for a few years um you know, if we're lucky um you know uh and then we walk away and we seem to think that a few years is good enough and then we basically assume it's going to be stable forever and I, I think when you're looking at uh, you know a range of mine sites across Australia that have or, or former mine sites that have undergone um, rehabilitation, there's certainly a, a great deal that uh, 10, 20 years later you come back and you realise there's ongoing pollution problems. Um, sometimes it may be uh, other issues such as weeds and sort of um, struggling ecological. Um, um, reconstruction so the the redevelopment of ecology in those areas such as the land use or things like that sometimes that hasn't worked as well as people would hope but um but there's a, i think we need to be looking at monitoring not only just within a uh, you know a two three or five year window but uh, obviously within a much much longer time frame and that way we can really understand how a landscape evolves after mining how the ecosystem re itself and undergoes succession but also what's happening chemically, what's happening physically, and in the case of uranium mining, also what's happening radiologically, how much radiation levels are, um, if there are changes, what's driving those changes, so so we can really understand, and that means we need to be monitoring, I think, for at the minimum, I think, at least 20 to 25 years or more.
0: Is there any appetite in Australian governments and regulators for introducing that kind of regime?
2: Uh, at the moment, not really. I, I think if you're looking at all the different sites, there's uh, the, there's a struggle um, to even get the, fu- the funding to work out how to go back in and um, and re rehabilitate sites like Rum Jungle. So, um, if you look at the sort of what is arguably the world's most regulated mine in um, terms of the rangy uranium mine, um, it's still not actually good enough. Like we still um, haven't got those sort of commitments in place uh, either from the company or from the Northern Territory and Australian government. So. Uh, despite the fact that that's actually something that people have been calling for, because certainly for ranger, it's a very unique sort of circumstance where the ranger project area, the, effectively the mining lease, uh, is to be incorporated into Kakadu National Park at some point in the future. Uh, so, and it has to have equivalent um, ecological and cultural values as obviously Kakadu National Park. So ideally you would want um, a good long-term monitoring program Demonstrate that it, is, uh, you know, it has certainly met the criteria for incorporation into Kakadu before you before you incorporate it. So, I, and to me, in my mind, and looking at the variability of our climate from year to year, looking at long-term trends around climate change that we're expecting, um, I think that means we need to be monitoring for at least 20 to 25 years in a in a, in a sophisticated manner to make sure we can really understand um, whether mine rehabilitation has been successful or
0: not. You mentioned that Ranger Mine is about the most regulated uranium mine in the world. Does that mean Australia is doing it not well, but better than anyone else?
2: In some ways, we're doing it better for Ranger. But if you look at Olympic Dam, if you look at Beverly, um, I think you can easily uh, argue uh, and make a case that um, a lot of the regulation there is deficient. You know, the uh, Beverly, for example, is not required to remediate groundwater when they finish. Uh, Olympic Dam operates under its own um, effective uh, State Agreement Act. So it has a whole range of sort of special powers that make it a very privileged site compared to others. So um, range is very unique. And as I often say, although it is arguably the world's most regulated mine, it's still not good enough. There's still a lot of issues there that beg serious questions about current operations and and long-term environmental outcomes at that site.
0: Gavin Mudd, Senior Lecturer in Environmental Engineering at Monash University. You can also find more of Gavin's publications on the management of mine waste at the Monash University website. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Helen Gilliam. Thanks again to Corin Unger from the Centre for Mindland Rehabilitation at the University of Queensland and Gavin Mudd, Senior Lecturer in Environmental Engineering at Monash University. Today's podcast and others like it can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support and the Community Radio Network for distributing this show around Australia. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria. Our phone number is 03 9419 8377 and our email is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Earth Matters will be back next week with more environment and social justice news.